Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Alison Hall, interventional cardiologist at St. John's in Newfoundland in Canada, um, a city operator, complex PCI operator that we had the privilege of having you trained with us uh, several years back and who has uh, a lot of insights of the curve of the travel of getting from uh, um, standard PCI to becoming a very good person and uh, an expert operator in CTO PCI and complex PCI. So, Alison, welcome, and thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to participate. <laughs> so, Alison, uh, can you give us a sense of your journey? Um, how did you decide to become a complex and CTO operator? How, how did this start? Yeah, so I think for me, um, once I actually got started in my interventional cardiology fellowship itself, um, I quickly realized how much I loved doing actual coronary work. I truly loved it. And so once I really enjoy something, I really want to kind of take it to the limits of learning, you know. So I, I was excited by learning more and more in the area. And I think Gradually, I got exposed to more and more complex procedures, and I realized I really enjoyed that and wanted to learn more. And so I started to get a little bit of limited exposure to CTO intervention during my general interventional fellowship. And then I realized I was quite interested. So I started to look for learning opportunities at that time. And um, basically, I started to go away to some meetings. Um, I remember one of the ones that I went to back then, I think was the original sort of Chip Seattle course was one of the ones I went to. Um, eventually, I might have gone to a CTO summit back then as well. But um, any opportunities at courses or meetings, I would go and learn about CTO and complex intervention. And if I had the opportunity to do a talk, you know, f within my fellowship, I would choose a topic that was sort of related to that content so I could learn more about it. Um, and I kind of, I wanted to gain that skill set so that I wouldn't have to necessarily outsource so much in terms of my procedures. I wanted to be able to offer for, to patients kind of the full spectrum of intervention to the best of my ability. And so I got really excited about learning and then I had to find an opportunity to learn this, this skill set. So at the time, um, that was quite tricky, I would say. So I think a lot of the formal fellowship programs in CTO-PCI were sort of in their infancy at that time. Um, there was a formal training program at Columbia and I believe probably something in Seattle, but um, not a lot of formal training programs were happening. So I just started sending a bunch of emails um, to anyone that I knew was doing CTO-PCI. And I got a number of replies. I certainly didn't hear back from everybody, but um, one of the people who, you know, very uh, gratefully replied to me was yourself, of course. And um, I think I had had some brief email correspondence with you. And then I was at the Sky Fellows course. And it's just funny because you should, you know, people should definitely work on having the courage to go up and speak to people. Because I remember... 
I was actually very nervous to go up and introduce myself and everything, which is funny, you know, but there was um, a group of uh, fellows from Toronto that kind of like encouraged me, you should go up and say hi. And I had already emailed. So I went up and I introduced myself. I remember talking to you and then, you know, um, that was very helpful. And subsequently, of course, I interviewed for the fellowship and was lucky enough to get the position in Minneapolis and, uh, you know, to have that training experience. So that was sort of my own journey. But back then, it, it was pretty difficult to find training opportunities. And I think the other thing for me um, was the lack of funding, to be honest. So that definitely limited me. And as someone coming from Canada to the US, for example, um, in terms of getting visas, etc., not having formal funding was a big barrier. And um, so that that limited my selection as well, for sure. Yeah. So a look, a big journey and uh, a lot of uh, searching and finding solutions in the end. And I, yeah. I suspect, you know, we have a large number of patients in need of the procedure, right? So that's probably another of the factors that played a role in this? For sure. So it's, um, well, I think it's uh, in Newfoundland, essentially, we have one of the highest incidences of cardiovascular disease in the country. And um, certainly we have very complex disease as well. A lot of uh, significant coronary calcification, complex lesions, and certainly CTO here as well. So um, there's definitely a need for it. And, you know, there were people um, like one of my senior colleagues had essentially been quite interested as well over the years and, um, you know, gone off and gotten his own learning opportunities and had a bit of a foundation of a program here and was doing great work as well, but certainly an ongoing need for those interventions here in the province. And um, there's a couple of us here doing it now. So, yeah. Perfect. So a great service. I mean, lots of development and service, but, um, so you obviously traveled, I forget how many thousand miles to make it uh, to Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a big, you were already on a job, right? So for many people, that's a big barrier because mm -hmm. you were already on the job, you were practicing, and then it was a pay cut, it was a big move across, yeah. you know, across again several thousand miles. So wh why did you decide to do that versus just go to a few courses, get a few people to come and proctor you? Why go through a, tra a formal training program versus training on the job, which is something that, you know, many people still do up yeah. to the day? For sure. So I think... You know, everybody's uh, case is a bit different. I feel that up until that point, I had had pretty limited exposure, to be honest. Um, so certainly I could have gone with a proctor option. But for me, I felt like I really needed a more immersive experience. And um, having seen a couple of the initial fellows come out of their training programs and, you know, the skills that they had and the knowledge that they had, that was something I really was interested in achieving. And I felt for me in particular, anyhow, that um, having a dedicated fellowship would work best. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a difficult transition having been in practice for that one year, although my original intention had been to go directly to do my fellowship. I had to delay for a year because of visa issues, unfortunately. But it's true, you know, once you get to be staff for a year and you're used to making your own decisions and everything, and, you know, luckily you were very kind to me that way, but it is an adjustment going from a staff position to a fellow again. And um, luckily, you know, it worked out well for me, but I think I have absolutely no regrets about the way that I went about things. And generally speaking, I would highly recommend dedicated fellowship and CTO um to most, you know, people early on, at least that are interested, certainly people later in their career who want to go back and get the skill set. There's many other options that are out there. But for me, starting off, I think that was by far the best way uh, to get the learning I needed, basically. Yeah. Perfect. And then what did you find the most difficult thing to learn in terms of CTO and complex PCI? Was it 
manipulations? Was it the guys, the catheters? What was the thing that you found the most challenging to learn? Um, I'd have to give that a degree of thought to give you my perfect answer, but I think just off the top of my head, um, I, I found, you know, some of the aspects of studying CTOPCI were quite easy in a way. It's like studying any other subject, you know, um, I'm biased. I was like talking to you right now, but I love, you know, like manual CTOPCI. I love that book. I studied that book. The, the, the theory behind CTOPCI was not so difficult for me. Um, but I think actually physically doing the maneuvers of CTO intervention is probably the trickier thing as a fellow because initially as well, it's obviously graduated learning process. And so first of all, you're starting off maybe more with a bit more observation and some you know, some early limited procedural interaction, and then you kind of grow into doing more and more in the procedures. But to to get enough um, exposure and to get a, a feel of, you know, what is it like making a knuckle to manipulate a microcatheter, um, to navigate a, a collateral, et cetera, that sort of skill set, the procedural skill set for me, I think was what was trickier to get you know, I, I guess an, enough familiarity with in a way. Um, the theory is one thing, but then getting in and actually doing the procedures is a bit of a different matter. Um, and then certainly I think for anybody, you know, more and more um, learning around complications and feeling confident in your management of complications is one of the big aspects of moving forward with confidence in CTO interventions. So um, getting exposure to dealing with complications was something that was I guess challenging just in the sense that you need to get enough exposure to it to, to improve that skill set. So again, it's that translation between you may read about, you may know exactly in theory how to do a number of things, but then you have to actually get in there and get the opportunity to do it and feel confident. And I think the more you do things, it builds your own confidence in your skill set as well. So yeah. Perfect. And then you've come obviously a long way. Are you feeling stressed out when you do the cases now are you feeling really very relaxed when you do the cases how do how is the mental aspect of that um feeling at this yeah, point yeah um so i think for me i wouldn't say i'm stressed out and i'm not particularly afraid or anything like that i feel confident going into cto procedures but i think I mean, to some degree, because I am early on, you know, I still, I recognize that I have a lot of ongoing learning to do. And so there's always, I guess, a, a bit of an energy about it of, you know, a little pressure on yourself, maybe um, you're hoping for things to go well, you want to succeed, you're being mindful of the needs of the lab and time constraints and, um, you know, um, wanting things to go very well early on as you're building building forward your your program and your CTO skill set. So I think there's a little bit of nerves around it, but it's it's less so nerves about, you know, being able to manage complications or those kinds of things. Of course, nobody wants to have a, you know, there are times when I've had some stressful complications, et cetera. But um, generally speaking, I don't go into it worried about those things per se. And then if you know, despite all the efforts, some things happen, a complication happens, or a procedure doesn't go. How, how do you handle that? Are you able to bounce back quickly? Does it bother you for a while? How do you handle this complication? That's an excellent question. It's interesting, actually, because there's been um, not necessarily even just complications, but recently in work, there's been a couple of cases that were mentally a bit difficult that happened in our institution. And um, I think for me, it's, it's a real range. So generally speaking, if there's a complication, 
and I deal with it promptly and things go well. And it's within the expected realm of complications that you discuss with the patient before the procedure. Um, and it doesn't really have a major impact on the overall outcome of the procedure and the patient as well. That's fairly easy for me to move forward from because I feel like I've done the best I can and it's within the realm of what you would expect potentially for a complex procedure, I find those complications are easier to move forward from, you know, if I have to coil a collateral or something like that and everything goes well, Um, you know, but I have had some more difficult complications. I had one complication, in fact, which was not in a CTO case. It was a disastrous perforation. And the interesting thing was, is that I did ultimately control it in the acute um, moment, although it was a very, very bad perf and I lost control of it for a while, et cetera. Um, But I controlled it and, you know, I was feeling good about things at that point. You know, this was terrible, but at least I've gotten things under control and no big effusion, what have you. And the patient um, went on to the CCU and actually subsequently passed away within about 24 hours or so, more from a shock picture, I think, from the ischemia during the entire um, event in the context of someone that didn't have, you know, necessarily the best LV function and things going into the procedure. And that case was harder mentally for me. And it was an, a, more of, um, it wasn't a CTO, you know, it was a post-bypass patient, um, calcific osseal circ, you know, <laughs> with uh, rota, et cetera. But, um, sure. and in fact, the perf happened from a balloon, not even from the rota. So it was uh, humbling in a way because you did have this person come in, you know, with an NSTEMI essentially somewhat well coming for this procedure and you end up with this fairly devastating complication, you quote unquote salvage the complication, but ultimately they still met their demise. And that was, that was a difficult one for me to move past for a little while. Um, and we've just had some other more tragic cases with say mechanical complications of MI recently that you don't have a lot of control over, but, um, there's certain cases that stick with you and that are more difficult to move forward from, but I always move forward, but you know, it just may mean that you need to sit and think about things a little bit, talk it through with colleagues. Um, And sometimes we actually have debriefing sessions as well in the lab that can be helpful as a team. We go through what we could do better next time. What did we do well in the particular scenario and try to learn from the experience. So I think it's, it's really a balance. Sometimes, you know, complications stick with me a little bit more, but generally speaking for the ones that are expected and, you know, I have the skill set to manage them. I'm able to move forward from those fairly, fairly readily. Perfect. Yeah. And then in terms of the planning, how long do you, how much time do you spend planning for either city or complex cases at this stage? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I, I love planning, (laughs) you know, the more time, the better. I actually think it's, for me, um, just me personally, my own skill set, it's like my, my own little superpower is planning. So I can sit down and I love to analyze films. That that gives me the best advantage going into a case. I have all of my you know possibilities planned out in my mind. I've looked at all of the paths, all of the collaterals. I've examined you know the proximal cap and where exactly do I think things are going. And I when I get the opportunity to do that, I feel like I perform better, to be honest. I've had scenarios where I've had less opportunity to do that. I've had to sort of jump into things a little bit more. Yes, there's planning, but maybe a little bit less. And although those cases can certainly go well, I feel that generally speaking, I perform superiorly when I have enough time to prepare. So that being said, it's not as if it's this, you know, extremely long process, but basically the night before a case, for instance, for me, I would study the films. 
in a fair bit of detail. And I would make sure to the best of my ability, because sometimes we have equipment shortages, but I would make sure that we have the majority of things in stock that I would need to use for that case. Um, and I also like to look at old films as a big thing for me. So if I have access to old films and what the artery looked looked like prior to occlusion or previous interventions, et cetera, I really like to look at that information. Um, and of course, get a general sense of, you know, any patient factors that are going to be a player in my case as well um, in terms of access and various things. But for me, just studying the films is so important. And that's one of, I really enjoy it. Like there's a certain element of puzzle solving, I guess, to CTO intervention. And that's one of my favorite things is to kind of sit down and think, how am I going to tackle this? And what are my options? And so for me, that's very helpful as opposed to necessarily just jumping into things. Although I can do that too, but it's not my preference. So, um, so for me, preparation is really key. And I think it's also a reflection probably of where I'm at in terms of my career as well. I'm sure as I get more and more case volume and more and more experience, I may be able to jump into things a little bit more promptly. But for me, I like to study. So yeah, and um, <laughs> that's how I operate. Yeah, this is perfect. You can never plan uh, enough. So this is a great skill and a great uh, habit. Now, I know that you have a huge background in music. Yeah. Has that affected your approach to, you know, PCI, complex PCI? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I think probably on some level, I'm, I'm a violin player at heart, I guess. You know, I played violin, oddly enough, since I was about three years old. So I guess to some degree you could theorize that maybe that provided me with an element of technical skill in terms of my hands and hand-eye coordination um, that's probably transferable to this kind of intervention. Whether or not there's a direct relationship is tough for me to say, but I think in theory, it probably makes me a little bit more good with my hands, I guess, or, um, you know, fine motor skills and that sort of thing. I've, I've certainly had a lot of exposure to from a young age. Um, it's funny you mention music, though, in general, because it's also another thing that's really important to me in general in terms of um, kind of finding balance. And I actually this this is controversial topic, but I actually like music during my cases as well. Not loud, you know, but to a degree in the background, I actually find it relaxing, helps me focus. So um, so I have a, this whole interesting kind of relationship around music. But yes, I think to some degree, the technical skill that I gained, I play other instruments as well. And I sing and all that. So I think maybe to some degree, it transfers into my ability to do procedures. But it's not something I actively think about. But probably it has over the years, I guess. Yeah. What music do you hear in the catalog? Oh, boy, it's a real mixture. I have a lot of people to please. So I have, I have to please the nurses, the techs, I have, you know, the patients so, and myself. So I, I create these um, like CTO playlists and they've got a wide variety on there and they're not always loved. You know, there's something for everybody I like to think on there. So it's not always reflective of my own music taste, but I try to find a good balance. Very broad mixture of tunes, yeah. So, well, I think that's the ultimate planning. Uh, <laughs> doing, uh, anyone else to plan to create CTO playlist? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. So, yeah, whether or not everyone else does, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to be it seems to be working. So. Yeah. Uh, how about the radiation part? I know it's always mm -hmm. a sensitive part. You're, I know you have a very large volume of cases, and apart the complex and non-complex, how do you manage the radiation? Yeah, so I think um, 
it's very important to be cognizant of your radiation exposure. It's not something that ever um, made me afraid or nervous to do complex intervention. Um, it really didn't. But at the same time, it's so important. I, I have to say my own focus oftentimes is really on radiation for the patient. That is a major concern for me. And especially I've been dealing with older equipment now for a while. Luckily, we're upgrading our labs right now. But it was so easy to accumulate radiation quickly, um, especially in larger individuals. So patient radiation safety was a really big focus for me. Um, and it was, it was challenging. It wasn't always easy to minimize, in fact, with what I was dealing with. Um, but lately, I have been thinking a bit more about my own exposure to radiation. In fact, we did have um, a little bump in my neck exposure recently, and that got me to thinking about it more. So I'm very interested in improving that going forward. I mean, I have to be patient because we are in the process of upgrading our, our entire lab, essentially. And I think once we complete that process, um, everything's going to be a lot better. Eventually, I'd love to get maybe one of the Rampart systems or something like that if we ever have that in our, our budget. But um, but no, I mean, I, I'm always focused on patient radiation safety. And for myself, um, of course, I do um, have ongoing monitoring through the lab of my own radiation exposure levels, and that's monitored regularly. Our LEDs are checked regularly. Um, I always wear, I actually wear, well, full LED all the time. I wear um, leaded uh, protective eyewear and for what it's worth, I actually have to read more about this because I know it's a controversy about the leaded hat because I was wearing one for quite a long time. And then there's some discussion of whether it may, may be worse, in fact. But um, generally speaking, I'm wearing as much protective gear as I can. And uh, yeah, and we try to do our, you know, our shielding and our everything basically to minimize radiation exposure for staff and for the patients. So. But uh, it's something you have to be constantly cognizant of, but it also doesn't make me afraid to participate in this you know, sphere, I guess. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I know that I'm a little uh, uh, obsessive compulsive about this, so hopefully I didn't yeah. create any PTSD uh, <laughs> after, after no. you, you stayed with us. So. Yeah, no, I, I survived. <laughs> Other than when we forgot to unlock that, uh, that um, oh my gosh, the zero gravity thing that time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. The zero gravity. I know. Highly recommend it. Obviously, <laughs> it's a little bulky, but uh, yeah. But it gets the job done, I guess, in a good way. Yeah. No. Now sure. you train fellows and uh, other people as well, right? And you work with trainees. Um, how can you tell if someone you're going to to train is going to be someone that is highly promising? You think is going to do a good job to do complex or any other of PCI? Do you have any internal sense? Do you have any criteria? How? How do you know how people are going to turn out eventually? That's an excellent question. So first of all, just um, to clarify, in terms of the training I get to do at my actual center right now, I do not have um, interventional fellows or cardiology fellows, but I actually really enjoy teaching and I have um, medical students and residents and internal medicine residents. And we actually have some fabulous internal medicine residents who are really keenly interested in cardiology. And I love interacting with them. And also I've kind of taken an interest in trying to help people along who are really interested in terms of their career and, you know, moving forward with things. So that that's a big interest of mine. But in terms of um, whether I think they're going to have promise either within cardiology or within interventional cardiology, um, I think I look for a couple of things. So obviously there has to be a degree of true interest there and enjoyment of the actual, um, work or the actual process of coronary intervention or cardiology or what have you. They have to actually enjoy it to a degree. 
And then um, I think you want an individual that has an attitude towards wanting to learn, wanting to improve, um, curiosity and excitement about, you know, learning the the material and the skill set. And I like to see, you know, you have to have a degree of internal, at least confidence. It's going to allow you to move forward with your, your training and to progress and to do more and more difficult things. But at the same time, I like somebody who has enough humility that they're able to recognize their own challenges and, you know, that it's a learning process and we're all getting better in time. And, you know, nobody is this big hero at things right out of the park kind of thing. So um, I think just a good attitude towards ongoing learning, genuine curiosity, genuine excitement about the kind of material that we're learning and, um, you know, and dedication and obviously responsible, reliable, trustworthy. Following direction is really important, actually, because I'm happy to teach anybody absolutely anything, but I have to be confident that you are going to listen and you're going to follow direction carefully. If there's something serious going on, you're going to be receptive to feedback. So that's important to establish. And if I trust you and I think you're going to respond well to feedback, I'll let you do more and more um, in terms of even just basic things like learning lines and stuff in the, in the unit, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't unfortunately get the opportunity to have interventional fellows. So that's it. Well, you never know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you'll be fabulous at that. Um, now, what uh, gets you most excited right now from the things that you're doing? What are the things that you're most excited? I think um, for me, it's it's something I'm excited about, but also challenged by is I really want exposure to more CTO intervention. I need to continue to improve my own skill set through case volume and just you know, from a system issue here, essentially, we have extremely long wait lists in terms of um, diagnostic caths and other coronary interventions. So understandably, we're not able to, on a regular basis, do the kind of volume of CTOs that certain people that trained around the same time as me are able to do, for instance. So I know that's a limitation for me. And um, I know I need to do more and more cases in order to personally improve and to continue to grow. So I'm excited about any time I get to do cases, basically sounds silly, but I I just, I'm always looking for the opportunity to do more and more cases. So in fact, I'm actually looking now at opportunities potentially to go places and to have ongoing procedural mentorship and, um, you know, to get further exposure um, elsewhere as well, just to supplement what I'm able to get at my own center currently. And I do think things will improve down the line, you know, once we get our additional cath lab, once we tackle our big wait list, et cetera. But um, generally for me, I'm still very much excited about actual CTO intervention, actual each procedure. I'm excited to get the opportunity to do. Um, I really enjoy collaborating with other people in the field right now and making more and more, you know, friends within the field and getting to bounce ideas off of people, getting to learn together. Um, I really enjoy that aspect of things. Um, I'm excited to get more and more involved with research at my center, more involved with teaching um, and, uh, you know, ongoing learning just in general always excites me as well. So, yeah. And what keeps you going with, I know you have the music as as you mentioned before, as a way to keep you calm and balanced, but what, how are you, you you have a high volume, a lot of demands and Mm -hmm. stressful uh, labs. So how do you handle all that? Yeah, so it can definitely be a bit stressful at times. I think, um, you know, having, I do have a number of different hobbies and interests. Um, 
you know, it is a, a challenge sometimes to actually get to act on all of them. But um, when I get free time, I do make sure I take time to um, to do some of my, you know, other interests. So like in the summers, recently, I, um, I got really into gardening, um, like full on vegetable gardening, greenhouse level stuff. So, um, you know, and digging vegetable patches and what have you. So that was a big thing I did the last couple of summers. And it's good. It's also physical. And it kind of relaxes you mentally to get out there and to be digging, you know, trenches and planting things and what have you. So I enjoy that I hike a lot. So for me, um, being out in nature is huge. Actually, it always has been. So um, we have this trail here called the East Coast Trail that goes all along kind of the, well, especially kind of the Avalon Peninsula and other areas here. And it's it's this extremely long trail trail that follows mostly along the ocean. It's beautiful and we can access it very readily, um, you know, within short driving distances or even walking distances from where I live. So I try to get out as much as possible and hike, especially in the summers. And that's also something that I do with my family, like my sister, for instance, really enjoys that as well. So it's an opportunity to kind of unwind and um, have a break from things. Um organization is an important part of staying on top of everything. And I'll be perfectly honest. I think that's something I can continue to improve on and uh, it will probably make my life easier. The more that I master organization, you know, to the level that you have, that would be beneficial to me for sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I think having, you know, friends and family um, hobbies and interests, obviously my animals are a big thing too. My dogs, you know, they're, they're wonderful. They're, they're terrible and wonderful at once, you know, <laughs> they, they cause lots of trouble, but they keep me busy and they're a good distraction also. And they're always excited to see you when you come home. So it's always nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice adding. I mean, it looks like you have multiple avenues. I didn't even know that you can grow things in St. George. I, it's it not easy. So it's a good tangent. challenge. It's a good challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a bit of a beginner, but I've had some good success. Yeah. Greenhouse helps. Yeah, I love this breadth of knowledge, right? I mean, you have the gardening, you have them, you have so many different things <laughs> to, I guess, mentally stimulate and excite you at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I like to keep, I like to be on the go. So, yeah. What is your uh, favorite book or your favorite and your favorite movie? Oh, goodness. Well, it's actually funny. Um, I was just discussing this with somebody because this is something I, I don't enjoy favorites questions, to be honest with you. So I have, <laughs> we just said, I have a lot of interest. I have a lot of books and movies I've liked over time, all sorts of music I've liked over time. So <sighs> I'm not like somebody that has this one favorite thing that tops everything else. Um, I guess I can give you a couple of recent examples of things that I've liked. So um, in terms of books, uh, right now, well, this book is a little bit silly in a way, but I'm reading, um, the art of racing in the rain. It's this, it's kind of just a light fiction book in a way, but it's from the perspective of a dog talking about his experience with, it's kind of like insightful about the world and people and what have you. Anyways, it's, it's a good diversion. I did read peak a while back. I know you had suggested that to me and I did quite, I took quite a lot away from that in terms of understanding a brand purposeful practice and what have you. So that, I read those sorts of things, you know, from time to time as well. Um, I think a recent series I liked, I liked um, The Queen's Gambit. <laughs> it was, it was good. Um, you know, I like so many different uh, things really overall. So I don't, I don't play a lot in terms of favorites, but yeah. And do you go to concerts and tell music or I know you play music as well? Mm -hmm. uh, concerts, yeah. So I think probably since I've come back, I haven't attended a lot in the way of concerts. I've been very, very busy. But um, 
actually, uh, as one of my Christmas gifts, we got a gift certificate to the Arts and Culture Center. So we're talking about going to check out maybe a, a symphony concert or something like that in the next little while. So I really enjoy that. So that'd probably be good. Or, you know, if there's, um, well, maybe when I go to New York, I might see if I can go to a musical or something like that. So um, we don't get a ton of excellent, uh, you know, bands and things come in here from time to time we do. But if I want to go see a band that I'd actually be interested in, I might have to travel to, to do that most times. So, but I like to go, you know, check out local music when I can, and you know, downtown and what have you. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And you're one of the, unfortunately, few at this, at this point, women who do complexity or beside the number has yeah. been increasing, fortunately. But how has that been for you, you know, being kind of a pioneer and being one of the few first people who get into this area and bring it to the next level? Has that been difficult, easy? How has the course been? Uh, I think it's it's been a real mixture for me. I think um, in some ways I've been embraced incredibly well as a female in this sphere, and it's been wonderful. I think I have certainly had my struggles as well, especially early on. I think it may in fact, be a combination of the fact that I'm female, but also perhaps my own personality is a bit more on the quiet side at first glance, for instance. And I think there's to some degree a certain, at least historically, maybe in people's minds, a certain stereotype of who does, I guess, even interventional cardiology or difficult interventions and what have you. There's a certain personality that people associate with that. But it's easy to kind of make assumptions about someone's degree of say confidence or ability based on that. But in reality, you don't really know that person. And I think so for me, that was a bit of a barrier early on. I maybe didn't have like the classic ambiance about me that, you know, exuded, well, she's going to be, she should do interventional cardiology. So it was a bit of an uphill battle at first, but then once I actually got my foot in the door and was able to perform interventions and everything, hopefully at least, I think I did change a lot of minds around that. And, um, so it's it's always been a little bit of a uphill battle in that regard. Um, I think sometimes, you know, um, being heard is a bit more challenging. Being seen is a bit more challenging. Um, but uh, generally speaking, I've, I've been grateful for some amazing opportunities. I have to say, actually, one thing that was wonderful when I I'm very grateful, obviously, for the fact that I had my entire fellowship training experience in Minneapolis. But I have to say another thing that was really wonderful for me was the fact that generally speaking, as a mentor, you were fabulous in terms of kind of being positive and lifting me up and supportive all along. And I have to say, I really, really appreciate that. It's been very valuable for me because to feel like you're belonging in a space and to, to be offered opportunities as if you belong and you deserve that, it makes a big difference. So I think... Um, you know, for a long time, I felt like I was kind of fighting to be in a space, but then I started to feel a bit more included. So that was, that was a nice transition. <laughs> um, and so, so generally speaking, it's, it's had ups and downs. I've had, I mean, have I had negative comments said to me? Absolutely. I have, have I had bad experiences? Absolutely. Is it always a bit of a struggle? Yes, <laughs> but there's been so much positive as well. So I think, and it's, it's actually wonderful to see the change over time. I'm about to go to a women in CTO event actually in February. And I mean, when I was interested in CTO intervention, I can really count probably on my hand, like the number of women that I could at least 
actively fine, you know, that we're, we're doing this sort of thing. And now it's huge. There's so many, you know, I mean, it's got, it's going to get better obviously, but compared to when I first started, things have improved so much. Um, and there's so many amazing, like complex uh, female interventionists out there. So, um, but it was, I would, I think it was harder early on, to be honest with you, I have to say, and I felt a bit more out of place starting off than I probably would now. So, yeah. Well, but I think in the same way, actually, you opened the path for other women as well. I think you serve as a role model, I think, for many of the people coming up into training. And uh, hopefully for them, it will be a little easier. But And I, mean, I think there's always some people who are more quiet than others. But actually, you know, it may be actually a strength. Sometimes yeah. you know, being loud and I know it's the classic interventionist model, but actually yeah. being more introspective and quiet might actually be a eventually a strike. I like to think so. And I think realistically, you know, there's people have quiet confidence as well. Like I may not necessarily be outwardly as boisterous, perhaps, although I, I certainly have my moments, but, <laughs> but I think internally, if I didn't believe in myself, obviously I would not have done the things along the way that I've done. You know, you have to have a certain amount of intrinsic belief in yourself to move forward so I think realistically, you just have to get to know a person and at face value, if someone might be a bit quiet or what have you, it doesn't mean that they're not, you know, confident or, you know, it's not the best fit for the, the thing they're interested in. <laughs> and once you get to know I me, know. I'm really not that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think substantial is important. And as you say, everyone has a different personality and yeah. end of the day, it's, you use the strengths that you have to the best way. And I mean, clearly to be in this area, as a starter, you have to have a lot of belief in yourself because otherwise it's going to be tough. Uh, 100%. So again, yeah. it's been amazing. And again, I think the biggest part is that you really opened the road for the other people to follow, actually men or women following down the line as well because some men are quiet too. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah. So um, what are you most proud of? You know, you've done many things so far. Hmm. Um, what are the things that you're most proud of so far? Hmm. Um, well, I think, gosh, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think I am proud of the fact that I pursued something that I truly love because I, I genuinely love complex coronary intervention. And in fact, I love caring for sick patients and I love acute care cardiology. I love, yeah. So I'm pleased that I stuck with pursuing something that truly excited me and that I was you know, eager to learn about, despite the fact that I didn't always get encouragement in that regard early on, you know, and it wasn't anything specific. It was just that maybe like the, for the reasons I discussed earlier. So I think I am proud that I stuck with that path and, um, you know, believing in yourself and moving forward with your goals, as long as you have enough intrinsic understanding of your, your limits, you know, you don't want to falsely believe you have the ability to do something that perhaps you really don't. But within yourself, you have some sense of what your capabilities are. And so I think being true to yourself and continuing and pursuing and, you know, um, moving forward despite challenges, I think that's something I'm proud that I've, that I've done. I think it's kind that you said that I might have, um, acted to some degree as a role model in that regard. I've never really thought about that, but if there's any other um, young interventionalists that were inspired by that at all, that'd be really great. Um, but yeah, generally I'm proud of that journey and I'm proud of where I started in general, you know, and just being kind of even where I'm from and um, 
where I'm at now. I'm proud of that entire thing. Um, I think otherwise, um, there's certain smaller accomplishments along the way that I've been proud of. Even something as simple as that DK crush paper. I, I was kind of proud of how that all worked out. It was just sort of a spontaneous thing that we decided to do and put a little bit of effort into that. I learned a lot doing that. I mean, I learned the ins and outs of DK crush and it served me well, but that, that did actually quite well. And I was proud of that. Um, I like to mentor young people now when I get the opportunity, I don't get a ton of opportunities, but when I get a young student or resident that I find to be truly interested, especially if they maybe don't fit the typical bill of someone who, you know, might just sail through, I really like to try to encourage them. So, so that's something I try to take pride in. Um, I think, I don't know, those are some of the things, I mean, um, overall in terms of that, I, I'm, I think those are some of the things that I'm most proud of, I guess, yeah. Well, this is impressive. And also, I think for the people, the background of the DK Cross, actually, this paper, <laughs> as people don't know, was actually uh, rejected, right? Yeah. And and I was saying, I'm listening somewhere else, but you were saying, no, no, let's push back. <laughs> you pushed back. And this has been one of the highest cited and read papers in your actually, intervention. That's right. Ever. I forgot about that. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so very it's well. thanks to the persistence and what you're saying that, you know, it's just having the tenacity, I guess, to stick with something and go through. And I mean, it was a good paper yeah. and it is a great paper. And many people actually, right. you know, have uh, benefited from that. So yeah, no, congratulations. Yeah. And again, also the part of the important part of this is not just the content, but again, the. Yeah sticking with it and pushing it through and, and yeah. explaining why it is important. I will say one other thing, actually, because this might be helpful to young trainees, too, because I remember when I was interested in CTO intervention, going to, for instance, CTO Summit and um, some of these bigger meetings. I, I absolutely loved it, you know, first of all. And I remember looking at the people up on the stage as being so distant from me, to be honest, you know, um, at that time. And I would honestly never have fathomed that I would know like people such as like yourself i mean the fact that other people in the cto community and complex intervention community would even know that i exist like that's not something i would have even thought of like i thought maybe okay i'll get some training and you know but i mean it's to the point where now um for you know i am actually faculty for cto summit which is amazing to me and so i'm proud of that because it's not something i would have ever pictured back then at all. And so you really don't know where your journey is going to end. And, you know, it's, it is important to just do what you love and to believe in yourself and to persist. Um, and I, I still have a lot of, you know, learning and growing to do. Um, and like I said, I want to get more and more procedural exposure. I hope to get better and better. But, you know, I've come a long way from just sitting in the back of those meetings and just I would never have ever thought that, you know, <laughs> That would have worked out that way. So, yeah. So keep well, keep an open mind. These not, <laughs> yeah, these are not hereditary things, right? This is not something that you are born with. Comes from family. It's part of the effort and the work you put into this, and yeah. obviously well deserved. And and again, I think everyone benefits from that. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of uh, any advice, any last piece of advice? I mean, everything you said so far is very useful. But if you were to finish with a few pieces of advice for people who want to learn, now they're entering the field and uh, they want to learn CTO and complex PCI. What are the top few things that you would advise them to do? Yeah, so I think one thing that's important um, is to actually understand the concepts and theory behind CTO PCI. It's not that necessarily memorizing every single thing 
you know, every bit of minutia in a book or something is going to make you a good CTO operator. But if you don't understand conceptually what you're doing, um, that could be difficult for your learning and it can be dangerous for patients. So I think starting off with some degree of reading around what are all the basic techniques? What's the armamentarium of techniques? I guess you could say you have to be familiar with obviously the equipment to an appropriate degree. So there's some degree of upstream reading that I would encourage people to do if they're interested in complex coronary intervention so that conceptually you understand things enough as you then move forward to actually learn the techniques. Then I just think realistically, like the more practice you can get with hands-on exposure to techniques, take every opportunity. So any cases where you might have the opportunity to practice um, a more challenging technique or to use a piece of equipment in perhaps a less acute scenario, take that opportunity and learn, you know, if you have to, like the classic example is, you know, if you have to coil a graft or something like that, that's your opportunity to practice coiling. But things in that vein, essentially, where you have opportunities to practice something where the patient is not actually in any acute trouble, take advantage of those situations. Um, learning basics, like, you know, regular work with microcatheters, trapping, those kinds of things, you don't need to be using those in CTO cases to learn those techniques. Well, it's important for day-to-day -day PCI and complex PCI in general. So really skill sets that everybody should have. And I think that's increasingly the case in interventional training, I'm sure now too. Um, so I think making sure you get adequate procedural experience, you get your hands on the equipment, whether it's in the lab or on the bench, you're playing around with things, you're feeling things, you know, you're actually getting exposed to equipment and um, how to manipulate it is, is really important. And seek out mentorship opportunities um, and um, talk to people for advice. You know, I think most people are pretty receptive to, um, to offering advice and guidance in this community and um, hopefully, you know, in cardiology training in general, there's a lot of good people it'd be help helpful to talk to. Um, but just take advantage of all the learning opportunities you can and certainly get out there and attend the meetings and things like that as well. Mm. Perfect. Well, again, it's been a pleasure, you know, even working with you a few years back, but also it's been such a delight to see you grow and become the person you have been today and serving as inspiration to many other people. So thank you so much thank for so much. taking the time today and um, hope to continue to work with you. And I think, um, there are many, many things for everyone to benefit. And as you said, this is a field that is not hereditary, but a field that everyone can grow and come into. And with hard work, uh, things pay off. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again, Alison. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast. 